This week on A Lively Experiment, the plot thickens on Sabina Matos' signature scandal in the first congressional district race. And what is the future for the Cranston Street Armory? A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Ken Block, founder of the nonprofit group Watchdog RI, Brown University political science professor Wendy Schiller, and political contributor Bob Walsh. Hello and welcome to Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. It is great to have you with us this week. Any discussion about the issues in the first congressional district race has taken a backseat to lingering questions about bogus signatures provided by the Sabina Matos campaign to get on the ballot. A rocky press conference by the candidate last Friday left more questions than answers, but Matos continues to rack up endorsements. And will the controversy still be on the voters' minds a little over a month from now? Wendy, I guess that's the big question. Uh, we don't, it's a crystal ball question, but how much is this going to affect her campaign going forward? Well, in this race, uh, you know, you, you have to think voters who have already cast votes for somebody like Matos, like Cano, um, they've already done it. And they want to affirm their own choices, right? If you already voted for Sabina Matos for lieutenant governor, why wouldn't you vote for her for Congress? So pushing those people off of Sabina Matos is the challenge all the other candidates face. I don't think she handled it very well. I'm not a fan of blaming campaign managers or contract staff. If there's a mistake in your campaign, you should take you know, responsibility for it yourself. And, um, and that really bothered me. Whether it bothers enough people to go with people they haven't voted for before, they aren't as familiar with, that's what we're going to have to see. Bob, you've advised a lot of candidates candidates, and I think it couldn't have rolled out worse last Friday, with the well, lingering um, effect, or, or is that just all the media parses it, but is well, anybody paying uh, attention? Three quick points on it. Uh, I tweeted last week that all campaigns, to some extent, are glass houses, so all the other opponents should be careful about throwing stones there, but for the grace of God, go any campaign. A bad staffer, a bad uh, hire does something so outrageous, it can impact uh, the entire operation. You know, I, I too was thinking, oh, maybe there should be a press conference every day. And then I actually watched the entire press conference on Friday. And I don't know how to solve this problem. It almost goes to the outrage level. But when you've got uh, a former talk radio host and someone who's essentially a blogger, not asking media questions, but bullying candidates who are on, uh, you know, doing a press conference. I mean, I think it's great training for Sabina Matos because we're getting the equivalent of Lauren Bobbert and Marjorie Taylor Greene asking questions of that press conference. And the legitimate media has to be incredibly frustrated when they're trying to get their real questions in that you've got two folks pretending to be media haranguing a candidate. And I don't know how you deal with that in this new uh, media world of ours. And the third point uh, Wendy touched upon, eh. If you've already voted for Sabina Matos, this probably isn't going to change your mind. At most, 40,000 people are going to vote in this race. 10,000 votes is the win number. I think there are probably still 10,000 votes accessible to uh, not only Sabina Matos, I think Aaron Regenberg, and I think two of the remaining uh, 10 candidates have a shot at, at coming around that. And with apologies to all the others, it's just the way these things work with resources and time limited. She couldn't have handled it worse. Uh, as a candidate, the, the right answer would have been, I'm raising money, I'm doing a lot of things. The signature collection was outsourced to staff and to other people. 
They didn't do a good job. That is my responsibility at the end of the day. I welcome a full investigation into what happened, and we need to move on. Yeah, I that think didn't they happen. said the end of that. We yeah. welcome a full investigation. We need to move on. Wouldn't it have been, um, be refreshing? In no, this doesn't occur to anybody to say, you know what? I'm trying to be lieutenant governor, and I'm also trying to be a candidate. I'm going to suspend taking my salary as lieutenant governor in the next couple of months, even though I'm working because, uh, you know, I need to keep my eye on one ball, and I can't keep my eye on ten balls. The One of my biggest beefs with how politics works, not just here but across the country, is an incumbent office holder in any office gets a free ride on the taxpayers to not do their current job as an elected official to campaign for another seat. And it's very difficult for somebody who is, doesn't hold elected office and has to feed their family and do other things to be able to avail themselves of the same chunk of time to execute a campaign in the same way. It's very difficult. I disagree in terms of a campaign strategy because Sabina Matos, to my knowledge, and her family are not wealthy people. And if you say, I can afford not to take a salary to take this job, it kind of separates you from your core constituency. And if she's identified with working people, and that's really how she's made her career in Providence, and then uh, as Lieutenant Governor, that sort of runs counter to the image. And, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, Sabina Matos, we had her in for a one-on-one -on -one at the Taubman Center. She's excellent. She's on her game. You know, these press conferences, these debates don't go as well for her, but one-on-one -on -one or in a small group setting, she's very, very good. So when you think about, could she be persuasive in Congress? You think, well, maybe publicly Aaron Bergenberger is a better speech maker, et cetera, et cetera, but one-on-one, -on -one, I think she can still be quite effective. And she's got to figure out a way to sell that to the remaining doubters who are still planning to vote in the primary. You talked about the low number of the turnout. So now the union endorsements are coming in. And I joked last week, I wonder if they maybe wish they had held back a week. Not Maybe that wouldn't change, yeah, but... Yeah. but but, so what's that going to mean in terms of ground game? How important? So the endorsements, we all this get is, them. This what's is the practical a unique effect? race, and people need to understand how unique a single candidate or a single position special election is. Not only do you need to advertise and get folks' attention, you need the motivational impact to get them to actually go out and cast a ballot, either early absentee or on election day. Um, this isn't advertising knowing there's going to be a big election. Oh, and while you're there, we'll give Jim Hummel a shot because I saw some good commercials. It, you know, so media is important. Uh, four or five of the candidates are going to have, in relative terms, a robust TV presence aided by outside money from the outside groups that can do independent expenditures, the way it works in, in a federal campaign. And those are going to be the folks who finish in the top five because they've got media wars. What's going to separate is that ground game getting out the vote. Um, Aaron Regenberg is running virtually alone in the left lane. The Bernie Sanders endorsement is a big deal because I've got a list in the state. Bernie actually beat Hillary Clinton in 2016 in the primary here, in including in places like North Providence. So you can't just go with normal assumptions. Um, Sandra, uh, or Sabina Matos is in fact the front runner. You know, that 20% in the polls is a pretty good starting base in a race where you're trying to get to 25. Sandra Cano's got a base in Pawtucket. She's got strong union endorsements. My old shop endorsed her, uh, the NEA, which has probably 6,000 members in the first congressional district, and, and United Nurses and Allied Professionals have supported her. Do they listen the, to what the leadership tells them on the endorsement? Um, we have, uh, in my old job, a very good track record of turning endorsements into votes uh, on any single uh, issue that's not necessarily enough to win an election, but it gets to you a core, you know, a core. But if you look at the bottom eight, 12 people in the race, bottom eight 
they're still combined going to get over 20% of the vote. And you're going to have to put one of the top five in the bottom eight, so to speak. Gabe Amo, uh, <laughs> Don Carlson is putting in a pile of money. We've seen some media. Do they have enough time to get traction? Well, I think um, Gabe Amo, uh, I think, maybe started a little bit too late. I think he needs to spend all the money he has. Uh, and I think there's an opportunity to sort of say, listen, Rhode Island is a very diverse state. We have a kind of all-white male delegation as it is. Let's send a voice to the House of Representatives that is more descriptively representative of diversity. I think I think Sandra Cano can make that argument. Gabe Amo can make that argument. Uh, Sabina Mathis can make that argument. Aaron Regenberg can't really make that argument. So I think that's a, a lane that they have an Occupy that that doesn't really turn off anybody. It's a reality we're a diverse state and may pick you up some votes. And so I've been surprised also that Sabina Mathis has been reluctant to emphasize the fact she's a woman. Why shouldn't she go out? She got Emily's list. She sort of made a big deal about that. But in her interview, she'll say, I'm not just running as an Afro uh, Think about, though, the woman. independent expenditure impact that Emily's list has endorsed. Emily's list learned a painful lesson in the special election in Massachusetts where Jake Auchincloss won because Emily's list said, well, we like all the women and we don't like any of the men instead of singling out one candidate. They are with Sabina Montes. I expect them to make up for their mistake in Massachusetts and spend real money and I think that will in fact be their message. Thoughts about the others? There's so many. I mean, <laughs> so yeah, many I mean, thoughts or so there, many there, candidates. There's, 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 there's so many candidates. They're fighting over a tiny number of votes. Anybody can win it, honestly. Uh, whoever wins it is going to win and not have a true representative sample of Rhode Islanders voting for them. Uh, I look at this and hope that it's a temporary election and that there's a more representative election next year. Yeah, you talked about that. We talked about yeah. that off camera. You think there, this is kind of the placeholder and then next year it rolls out a little bit more like a regular campaign. Uh, I, I would expect so and I would expect some bigger names to engage in a race where the turnout isn't going to be a you know, five or ten thousand uh, vote winner. Yeah, Let me just. Uh, Ken and I disagree on that. I think that there's going to be extraordinary pressure, assuming one of the top four candidates uh, prevails uh, in, in the Democratic primary and general election to consolidate behind them. We're going to have enough mischief going on across the country in trying to uh, elect, uh, re-elect a Democratic president um, and and take Congress back. There's not going to be a lot of room for mischief uh, in a seat that is otherwise safe. Uh, you have kept your eye for years on the Secretary of State's office, the voter roll list, and as you know, you see the signatures and the Board of Elections. Yeah. And I thought, I, I'm curious what you think, but I, I've given this a lot of thought over the last week. I thought the Board of Elections had a great opportunity to go in and let's look at every single signature, and they punted. It's the Board of Elections' responsibility to look at every single vote, uh, uh, signature because the Board of Elections oversees the operations of the boards of canvassers. And what we have seen as a result of this signature brouhaha is that some boards of canvassers have really misfired when it came to uh, uh, matching and confirming the accuracy of some signatures on nomination papers. The Board of Elections should get to the bottom of why this malfunction occurred and what will be done to fix it because we rely on signature matching to be the only form of security that's available for mail ballots. Mm. And if we're not doing the matching correctly on the nomination papers, it is a valid concern 
to be worried that the boards of canvassers and the Board of Elections are not doing a good job on matching signatures for security purposes on mail ballots. We need to have a full accounting. We need to understand what went wrong and what will be done to ensure this doesn't go wrong again, and the Board of Elections isn't doing that. And there are investigations, though, right? So the Attorney General and the State Police are also investigating the signature issue. And I agree, and then that gets to the bigger issue of how many towns and cities we have and how many separated governments we have in Rhode Island. Uh, you know, one could think that a state this size could handle it at a centralized level. There, there is uh, level. absolutely a technology-based solution to make this easier. Um, even if you keep the current 500 signatures or 500 folks saying, I want this candidate to be in, there's a better way to do it. Yeah. I disagree with Ken a little bit. I think the process for absentee ballots is a lot more rigorous than the uh, process for validating but I think folks it the ballot. But I think it reinforces the narrative no, no, and I, the suspicion right, right, from right. people who people say... People have to trust right. elections. Everything we can do to explain to folks how it works and make it more efficient. Um, this, this is actually where artificial intelligence might be a useful tool to do signature matching, right? Just feed it into the machine and say this one looks like it needs to be independently verified. I, I, mean, I, think, I think this is, it disrupts people's confidence in the voting system. That's true. But now we have uh, former President Donald Trump even saying, hey, get out there early. You well, know, the make Republicans sure you know the they got to play that game, right? They really, they yeah, yeah. clearly, <laughs> right? clearly understand what a disadvantage they had, particularly in early voting. And, and they've restricted early voting in some states because they want to make sure that some constituencies, particularly Democratic constituencies, don't vote. You know, African Americans vote on Sundays, the Souls to the Polls movement. They've cut out Sundays in some cases. But now they're figuring out, wait a minute, we're cutting out opportunities for our own people to vote, and this is a mistake. So I'm curious what happens with that perception of um, suspicion on mail-in ballots and early voting, because the Republicans really need that to happen to do any, uh, to really win in 2020. And remember, early voting isn't under suspicion, because you still go to your city or town hall like you're a regular voter, you just do it yeah. earlier. Right. Yeah. I will be fascinated, I, we probably won't be on until after the, again, uh, in, until after the primary. The analysis of the early vote, the absentee vote, and the election day vote in this very special purpose Democratic primary is going to be fascinating. As opposed to the last time. Right. I think a lot of that early voting, you know, there was criticism, 20 days. I think a lot of it came in the last four to five days. Yeah. And, and, uh, for know, convenience. With due respect to the folks who sadly, to the, for them and their friends, aren't going to win, they're, as I said earlier, they're all going to get votes. They all have, uh, especially the ones that have already been... Uh, uh, hold elective office or have run before, they all have operations, they're all out there, they're going to work really hard, they're going to get votes, but that does reduce the overall magic win number because it takes at least 20% of the vote off the table from those bottom eight candidates. Okay, we talked a little bit about it last week. The Shoreline Access Bill is already having an impact. People are beginning to test it on beaches throughout Rhode Island. There is now a court challenge against it. And Ken, you, you uh, as we were talking off camera before, uh, this is the north-south, right? Ten feet up. You've been focused on the east-west. Right. The public access so to get to the beach. You Trying to deal with a societal issue like beach access, you, you have to take it in incremental bites. So the bill that got passed last session uh, clearly identified the piece of the beach along which people can walk along the beach. And before we had that, it was really a mess, and it wasn't clear who could walk where. Mean now high we, tide on the third uh, Tuesday right, after the full Ten feet above the... Right, 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 right. right. Yeah. So now the problem is, and, and our hometown has a, a, is a classic example of what's broken here, uh, in Barrington we have, I think, several dozen public right away, rights away to the beach or the shoreline. 
most of those public rights of way have an extensive parking ban around them, such that you can't park within a mile of some of these public rights of way. So what is it a public right of way if, and by the way, the only place pretty much in town where there is no parking like this is around the rights of way. So this is a fight, and it's not just here. It's a fight in South County where we have beaches that have been effectively privatized by pretend fire uh, fighting uh, organizations and on and on and on. There, there's, there's a lot further to go. There's a lot of things that are really twisted up and wrong with public access to our shoreline that we're going to have to pick apart and deal with one at a time, and it's time to deal with the ability to get yourself near to one of these public rights away so that you can access the shore and walk along that 10-foot strip. Well, you have to look at the state legislature and ask yourself how many people in the state legislature have these family cottages uh, along the beaches where they have this private encased, you know, not necessarily wealthy, they could be small cottages, but they like it the way they like it. And, and I'm a transplanted Rhode Islander and I've been here a long time now, longer than any other place I lived. But the extent to which the nimbyism on the beach, in the beach communities is extraordinary. I think there are misdevelopment opportunities and of course there's climate change. So the 10 feet line to me, you know, honestly, I'm like, well, climate change is going to take care of that, right? I mean, sooner or later, these people who built right on the beach and right don't there. want people camping out in front of their roads, that's going to be gone anyway for everybody. So we don't have to spend a lot of time fighting on that for 10, 10 years from now. But I do think it's a culture in Rhode Island. It's the beautiful beaches, beautiful water, but it's family traditions. And they feel like we worked hard for it. You know, my grandparents built this tiny little shack, and now it's a much bigger house. But I don't want anybody else near it. I don't know how you fight that in the state legislature when the state legislators themselves are a product of that. Um, I agree with Ken. How's hey, that? I 100% agree with Ken. <laughs> and in Ken terms, we solved the parallel problem. Now we have to solve the perpendicular problem. Right. You can walk on the beach. How do you get to the beach? Um, to Wendy's point, we have been dealing with, and this is if you want to understand global warming, go down to Matunic and watch the yeah. cottages move back. Oh, oh, I used to have the front row. Now I'm out in the cornfield, and, and they keep well, moving no, the back and moving the back. Up. That cornfield now is actually right. pretty much right. filled up. So that, we that, understand that yeah. you know the tide is literally coming in on yeah. this. But uh, yeah, yeah, I absolutely... I, I, I'm a native. But if, if you're going to walk on the beach, I want to understand um, if I want to go down and walk on the beach. How do I get out there without having someone, you know? And what if you get tired? What if you're tired and you want to sit down for 20 minutes on the beach? Well, you can. You can, well, you can do, do that, that now. now. You can do, you can that, do that, now. that now, but like you can't camp can out, right? No, 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 no. You can. Well, I thought there's oh, some no. dispute no, about no, 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 in, next to Watch Hill, on a 90-degree day, some poor guy in his black uniform and black boots, he got hired by a property owner, and that's been going well, on for blue, years. And people in East Beach are blue shutters. Right, blue shutters. You got to pay for parking exactly. a little bit more. It's a smaller beach, and they, you know, they fill up early, and they're across the street from each other. Exactly. Yeah. All right. What would a show be without talking about Governor McKee? Now, the headline this week, Bob's smiling, the headline this week was that the Ethics Commission is going to look at this now infamous lunch. I think the larger issue, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, we were going to talk about this last week and ran out of time, Bob. He pulled the plug on the Armory District um, proposal, and then people said, all oh, ramifications. My personal feeling is I thought that was a good decision. From the state's point of view, I'm not sure what the return was going to be. Now, Providence, you know, I know the neighbors are upset. What about that decision? Yeah, on the um, good. Well, this also gives me an opportunity to clarify. Uh, Wendy uh, mentioned I should because she 
binge-watched all the shows. And said, <laughs> I, I do not work for the state of Rhode Island. I do have a volunteer position with you the outside You don't work for Governor group. McKee? I do not work for Governor McKee But you did, the state you were an advisor during the campaign. Oh, I was absolutely an yeah. advisor during the campaign. And, and I will help you understand Governor McKee's perspective on a lot of things by answering this question. Governor McKee brings the perspective of a mayor to the office of governor. Was he he a looks mayor? at he I was never in heard fact that a mayor. He's a mayor I used to He's argue a with a lot. Oh, okay. He's I a mayor I used to argue with a lot. Um, but never personal, as they say. Uh, the Armory Project, I think even if you look through all the nonsense that went on and this horrible stuff that happened in Philadelphia, there was an underlying message there. You need to explain to the people of Rhode Island how this project benefits the people of Rhode Island. And if it doesn't benefit the state, then it's a city project. And I think they came to the conclusion it's mostly a city project. Now, you can disagree with that or not, and, and therefore, it's, the trend seems to be let Mayor Smiley take it and, and work it the way. And this is not a new thing. This has been unoccupied for 30 years. 30 years. So this is not, and uh, Governor Raimondo entered into a contract with uh, this innovative group from Philadelphia who, full disclosure, my niece works at the Bach building in Philadelphia as an artist. Because it's always, Rhode Island. There's there's always and a she drinks Narragansett beer. I, well, I don't know about that. I'll ask her about that. Um, but... It's not like they have the magic solution. Okay, that's an idea. Let's renovate this building and make it into whatever. But they decided it's a city-based project. My idea, which I'll share on the show, is let's give the city the armory. Let's take Camp Cronin in exchange and turn that into a statewide facility. So have we you, can put the resources into it. Have you run that up the, the poll with all No, I'm people? doing it right now. <laughs> um, as a Providence resident, how do you feel about this? I know it's on the well, other I mean, side I think of it town. Is a, it's a, you know, it is, but I mean, it's, it's, it, you could see where a neighborhood, that neighborhood... Um, either could uh, provide some sort of affordable housing or like beef up as a homeless shelter or develop it and beef up the small businesses around it. And it is a striking building. You know, when you drive by, you're like, well, how is this building not being used? So I think it should be used. I think Brett Smiley's been very cautious as mayor of Providence. There's been nothing. I mean, it's, it's you know, the end of July and nothing bold has really come out of the Brett Smiley administration yet in terms of development or initiatives. And I'm just wondering if, if it's going to be this way or he's just getting his feet wet or something. But there's no boldness coming out of his office. I he inherited before he expands the agenda. <laughs> $56 million can build an awful lot of affordable housing. To me, if we're going to allocate that much taxpayer dollars to a project, it shouldn't be to a 100-plus-year-old building that's in tough shape, that isn't really going to drive new economic development. Anybody who has a small business will have that small business elsewhere. The, the, the building won't create new business, I don't think. It's just going to provide a place for people to bring their existing business. Would you knock it down? Personally, I don't have affinity for old things. I think when it comes to structures in particular, if it's outlived its usefulness, uh, I would prefer to see it go away and be replaced with something that's appropriate for the current times. It's the same discussion we had about the Superman right, exactly. yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. iconic. Yeah. Is it iconic? Or? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I actually do th I think it's a beautiful building, and I would hate to see it torn down. But I also am on, I agree with you that when there's a, a more modern, more energy efficient, a better space use, then you sort of knock down the old building and build something that will serve more would people. Would you knock down Superman? Um, I don't know what you put in its place. You know, if you could, you know, that's a, that's a whole different. That's a whole big story. Did you knock down Superman? Uh, if if it was going to be placed with a new office building, 100. percent Or new housing. Yeah. Or new housing. We've yeah. got a lot of 
agreement on the panel today. I, yeah, yeah. I was, it was not how I envisioned it originally. Um, <laughs> well, okay, well, 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 well that's why to like folks, this is totally unscripted. We talked beforehand, but you never know what's going to happen on Lively. Your thoughts about up, down? I mean, I, I think maybe Brett Smiley is, is being cautious about this because that's a big thing to take on with a big drain on resources. I would love to see them do something like they did with Hope Artiste Village in Pawtucket at the Foundry. I would love to see someone come in with a plan that would make it a community center plus everything else. That would be terrific if they could. But, you know, sometimes things are so big that they're hard to use in that. You could you could play soccer inside there. I joke My once. My brother ran indoor track in high right. school in that building. It's an enormous facility, which is why... And that gets to energy costs, right? right? I mean, yeah. that heating and cooling and This you is know, why it's safety. sat vacant. You know, in, in X number of years, when we can figure out how to do renewable energy to heat and light the entire thing on site, you might have a different... All right, get back, get back to me in 10 years. Let's go to uh, outrageous and or kudos. Mr. Block, let's begin with you this yeah, week. Yeah, I'm going to come back to the signature scandal. Uh, the Board of Elections' failure to fully investigate all the signatures that were collected will leave some doubt in some voters' minds, probably a lot of voters, on whether Matos is properly qualified to be on the ballot in the first place. If she manages to win this election, she will carry with her this doubt that she was not properly qualified to be a candidate or to serve uh, as a congresswoman. So. I think that there's some real problems coming down the line because of the board's ineptitude in executing their sworn duty to oversee the actions of boards of canvassers. Uh, and I hope that there's some pressure put on them to finish the job of having some accountability to what went Well, here's there. the other problem. O agencies 10 years ago, you could talk to the directors, you could talk to department heads. Now they've hired a public relations group that put out a statement, and nobody's available for an interview. So that's my pet peeve. Bob, what do you have this week? Um, uh, kudos uh, to someone who I don't know, and in honor of Ken, isn't even a Democrat. Um, uh, losing any life is tragic, and we've had too many, too much loss of life off uh, Connecticut Point in Warwick, where swimmers get caught on the. Kudos to Frank Pacosi. Saw the problem. It really bothered him. He thought about it. He used that innovative brain of his. He figured out how to rig up an alarm system. He took it as far as he could on his own. He asked for help from his internal IT folks, from the police and fire folks in Warwick who have expertise in the area, and they're going to implement a system that whenever this is, whenever it gets dangerous out there, warning alarms go off, the bells and lights go off, and announcements come in as many languages they can figure out are relevant to warn people to get out of the water and back on land. He saw a problem came up with a solution, not a lot of fanfare, and he gave credit to all the people that helped him. That's just great. The practical effect of that is it's going to be so irritating, nobody's going to go to the beach so they won't go in and uh, Well, uh, they shouldn't go that far out, and I get it. It's an attractive nuisance. Yeah, and, and so many, I mean, we do that story every year, so I agree yeah. with you. When do you have the last 90 seconds? Uh, okay, so my outrage was actually this, that too many people, not only in Rhode Island, but in New England, we've, this summer has been a terrible weather summer, but lots of uh, unnecessary, of course, loss of life to drowning, and a, a lack of proper education. And I grew up in a place that has water, Long Island, Island, New York, and I, I don't know what schools are doing, but I think there shouldn't be an economic gulf in learning how to swim and getting beach education in Rhode Island. I mean, we are a coastal state. We should have
have at least a module in schools or, or if, if anything, uh, swimming lessons offered at a discount rate so everybody can learn to swim, everybody gets educated, parents, families, so that you have a better sense of education about the water and the dangers of the water in a coastal state. We are the ocean state. I think that's a good use of taxpayer dollars. You think that would come from locally or the state or? I think there can be coordination between school districts uh, for children and then community centers and there should be money. We have a, how much is it, almost $14 billion state budget. I understand there's a lot of federal pass-through. Yeah. That's what I think money should be spent on and so I'm just piggybacking on that and I think this is unnecessary and we have the opportunity to fix it. All right. Thank you so much, folks. That is all the time we have. We appreciate you joining us. If you don't catch us Friday at 7 or Sunday at noon, you can catch us all over social media. We archive all of our shows so Wendy can binge watch them at ripbs.org slash lively. It blows my mind that anybody would binge watch us, but I appreciate that. Uh, and you can get us on your favorite um, podcast, wherever you get that. So anyhow, uh, it's uh, happening very quickly in CD1. We'll be back here next week with all the analysis. Bob and Ken and Wendy, thank you. Folks, Join us back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.